to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I want to welcome, hey, regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser from Brattleboro. How are you? Hello, Olga. Very nice to see you. Very good to see you, too. And just for listeners, uh, I know we are in between legislative sessions. However, I know your work doesn't stop. Is there anything you're working on right now as a lawmaker, or are you doing constituent work? What's happening now? I'm actually taking two weeks off from both my regular paid work and my legislative work. Um, and I put out of office on messages on all four of my email accounts. What? And... So I am, but I'm still, I don't know. It still trickles in. It still trickles in, Olga. Um, I believe it. Yeah. Every time you go to the grocery store, I'm sure someone stops you and says, oh, by the way. And I still read some of the emails, even though I don't feel obligated to respond to them. <laughs> um, yeah. No, there's a lot of like flood response and preparing for the session happening. And then we're continue to continuing to attempt to find... A path forward on emergency housing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm sure we will be talking more about that uh, in the coming mm-hmm. months. Well, in the meantime, folks, you know, we have been doing a series of where we're hearing from some of our political ancestors and looking back and seeing what as modern Vermonters can we learn from some of these former, the, the folks who came before us and This week, we will be hearing from former Governor William H. Wills, who was born in 1882, passed away in 1946. He served as governor from uh, 1941 until 1945. Kind of interesting, he was born in Chicago. After his father passed away, his mother moved him and she and him moved to Virgins. So, uh, William was about age 10 at that point. As an adult, he moved to Bennington, took a variety of jobs, but then went into the insurance. He started his own insurance company, also worked in banking and real estate. Elected to the state house in 1929, started in the Senate in 1931, as well as some terms as pro tem. Lieutenant governor uh, in 1936, and then in the election of 1940, he was elected governor for his first term, which started in 1941, which is the inaugural address we will hear. While he was uh, governor, he secured a minimum wage legislation for teachers, worked on a merit uh, um, system for state employees, and also oversaw emergency wartime provisions and and getting those in place, because as we know, it was World War II. After he stepped away from being governor, he was appointed by President Harry Truman to the FCC. However, he passed away shortly after taking that appointment. Uh, I chose this address because it's he gives it in January 1941. And as you know, I've been trying to choose things, Emily, that are kind of in a transition point. Mm -hmm. And 1941 in January, of course, um, Tensions are kicking off in Europe, and and um, the Third Reich has 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 um, started expanding its powers and and um, 
taking over in, in Europe. The U.S. has not joined the war yet. But in December 41, of course, is Pearl Harbor and also the attack on, on some of the other islands like uh, I think it was Guam or the, the Maritime. Um, I'm forgetting their full name. I apologize for that. So it's that transition time between things are happening in Europe. The U.S. has not quite gotten involved, but no one's an idiot. <laughs> they know things are on the horizon. And so that's why I, I chose this particular this particular speech. Ah, okay. Yeah. So if you would so, love to start us off, Emily. I will do that. So this is the inaugural address of William H. Wills, as it appears in the Journal of the Joint Assembly Biennial Session 1941, Thursday, January 9th, 1941. Members of the General Assembly, government is a trust and the officers of the government are trustees, and both the trust and the trustees are created for the benefit of the people. These words, spoken by Henry Clay in 1829, have a fresh significance today. I appreciate the honor conferred on me by the state, and I am fully aware of the responsibilities of the great trust, the great office entrusted to me by the people of Vermont. It makes me particularly happy to know that there are in this assembly so many with whom I have served and those with whom I've worked so closely on the state's business. Before us lies a great task and together we shall meet it. It will be my aim as governor to offer only constructive criticism, to avoid merely tearing down when I can suggest a practical improvement. Our joint effort should be to keep pace with progress while still keeping faith with Vermont traditions. In accordance with the provisions of the constitution of the state of Vermont relative to the duties of the chief executive, I appear before appear before the General Assembly today to speak to you and through you to the people of our Commonwealth. We meet at a critical hour. Abroad, free institutions by the score have been wrecked by ruthless tyrants so that few traces remain of governmental structures under which mankind possessed liberty of action, thought, and speech. We in Vermont, in America, are deeply concerned. We are resolved that here we will be vigilant to guard and to defend the Republican form of government in our way of life. The decay of fallen republics overseas has not has been caused not alone by an overzealous tyrant. It and the dry rot with which they have been afflicted first had their origin in a disillusioned, unthinking, incompetent people. The germs of the disease, which has proved fatal elsewhere, are present in our body politic. Preventative measures must be taken. The challenge which confronted those republics faces us today. We have the ability to surmount the difficulties, to retain our liberties, and to safeguard our institutions. The antidote lies in your hands, in those of the judiciary, in mine, in those of the free men of the state of Vermont. Namely, laws wisely conceived, intelligently interpreted, discreetly administered, strictly enforced, and by all willingly obeyed. We in Vermont, as elsewhere, must learn to recognize and render ineffective all attempts of subversive groups to undermine our governmental structure or shatter public morale by creating dissension and discord among us. Mere lip service to the letter of democracy, however, is not enough. There must be clear thinking and positive action. The task is not easy. It requires courage, self-reliance, and hard work. Yet liberty is not for the weak. It is for the strong in spirit. Today, our country is engaged in a vast, far-reaching program of industrial mobilization and national rearmament. 
In it, we all share since the strength of our armed forces determined by the productiveness of our civil population. We must play our part instinctingly, wholeheartedly, and with singleness of purpose. I am confident that the country needs no reassurance that toward this end, Vermont and Vermonters generally will contribute their all if necessary. They will cooperate to the fullest possible extent in order to preserve and conserve the priceless heritage which we have so long enjoyed. Section 1. I have several subjects pertaining to the vast program of our state to discuss with you. Passing reference may be made to state finances, but the detail on this subject will be included in my budget recommendations to be made to you at a later date. The following matters, important to the welfare of our people, I do wish to call to your attention today. Old age assistance. The problem of caring for the needy old aged has been searchingly discussed in previous legislative sessions. In my budget recommendations, there has been provided an increase of $75,000 above the previous biennial appropriation. This provides $600,000 for 1942 and $600,000 for 1943, making a total of $1.2 million in state funds, and the additional appropriation when matched by the federal government, will provide 150000 additional new money for old age assistance payments. So, with state and federal contributions, total expenditures under this program in Vermont during the biennial period will be approximately $2.4 million for assistance to the aged burial expenses and administration of the state law. It is the hope that with an improvement in general business condition, together with payment under other federal social security programs, further increases in state appropriations will not be necessary. Unemployment compensation. The complex nature of this law and its necessarily involved administration leads me to say briefly that I am sure the commission will recommend such liberalization of provisions as may be socially and economically sound. Public welfare. State assistance to the needy and physically handicapped has become a grave fiscal problem. In one way or another, the state assists in supporting dependent mothers, dependent children, the blind, and the crippled. These dependents deserve assistance and aid for them, and aid for them should be continued. The proper administration of these services is a vital concern to all of us. Recommendations respecting proper interrelationships between the state and the municipalities will no doubt be contained in the report of the Special Commission authorized by the General Assembly of 1939. I recommend a careful study of this whole problem. The evident trend towards integration of welfare administration to avoid duplication of services and controls seems to indicate that ever-increasing responsibilities must be assumed by the state. With the increase in these responsibilities, it is incumbent upon you to apportion these benefits among all the people so that the greatest good is done for the greatest number. This must be done with a view to place the least possible burden consistent with duty and our general welfare upon the productive forces of the state. There are human values as well as financial aspects in all this work, both important. Education, rural schools. 
Vermont's economic, social, even physical and moral future welfare is in the hands of our grade teachers. As the twig is bent, so the trees inclined. And if democracy is to continue, it must begin with the training of our young. My predecessor, acting under authority granted him by statute, has recently established a salary schedule for all state employees, providing for a minimum salary and promotion according to rating and ability. Obviously, our teachers, competently trained in our state normal schools and constantly attuned to progressive standards and in education, to whom we entrust our children during the most important years of their lives should have equal consideration. Teacher salaries are now fixed by the towns, and it is my recommendation that future steps be taken under our state aid policy in continued cooperation with the towns towards the standardization of salaries, standardization of schools. I recommend that the rural school improvement plan be continued. Teacher training. Allowance has been made in the regular budget for increased scholarships and additions to normal school libraries. Vocational education. This is an expanding subject which deserves much careful thought. The National Defense Program calls for occupational training, and there is a demand for increased instruction in trade and industries, as well as in agriculture and home economics. I believe we must approach the ideal through a broader cooperative program, extending our school facilities to out-of-school youth and adults, and authorizing the training of teachers for vocational education. High schools. I recommend continued efforts in standardization and a broadened curriculum to meet the present-day standards for college entrance and requirements for adjustments and employment after the completion of high school. Temperance education. In my opinion, the laws requiring temperance education in the schools need to be implemented further. Highway safety. The problem of safety becomes more serious as the development of speed continues and winter driving increases. For the purpose of coordinating the safety activities of the many excellent organizations in our state, which are promoting traffic safety, and for the purpose of cooperating with enforcement agencies engaged in accident prevention, a properly organized state safety commission should be of great value. It is my opinion that to accomplish the greatest safety results, the educational program which has been worked out and is properly known as the Vermont State Safety Commission should be enacted into law thus superseding the Governor's Highway Safety Council, which expires April 1st, 1941. As this is a highway problem, I believe the funds for the purpose should come from the motor vehicle revenue. Highways and Bridges The Bureau of Public Roads and the War Department have, de have designated 845.2 miles on the federal aid system as strategic highways in Vermont. It may, therefore, become necessary that we spend all or part of the federal funds on these designated highways. This is in line with defense regulations as to highway policy in the United States. This also will involve federal aid secondary funds, which may, of necessity, be used for access roads in and around military areas. However, an effort is being made by the New England governors to have the federal government provide independent funds for this work. I wish to call to your attention a problem which will come before you for consideration, the Missisquoi Bridge at Swanton. From a careful study, it seems to me that the payments on the bonds can be met by the Bridge Commission if, during the coming biennial period, aid is rendered by the Highway Board in maintaining the approaches. 
The cross-state highway between Newport and Richford has now been put on the federal aid system. That indicates that this important link of highway may be built within a reasonable length of time. Motor vehicle revenue. The revenue from motor vehicle registrations, driver's licenses, and gasoline tax should continue to be used, as in the past, solely for highway purposes and should not be diverted to other uses. It should be handled by each legislature, however, to lock this money up by constitutional amendment in any way is, I believe, unwise and unsound. Aviation. Vermont now stands 47th among the states in progress in aviation. No good. <laughs> Therefore, I recommend that this legislature give consideration to the question of state policy respecting development of ports and fields, consideration of which is now left entirely to the financial ability and initiative of the towns and cities. This program raises the question, if under present policy we can do our share in providing sites for fields needed for national defense and our development. State Planning Board. In addition to the research work regularly carried on by this agency, there is need that their work on interstate streams and their cooperative work with the Motor Vehicle Department and with local agencies on airports and airfields be continued. Further, there is much that the Planning Board can do to assist the work of the State Defense Council. Section 2. I find that on the whole our departments are manned by a conscientious, efficient, and loyal group of people. However, new times and changing conditions demand new standards. So I want to discuss the merit system. The legislature of 1939 authorized a special commission to study employment conditions, positions and salaries with a view to establish a merit system for state employees. At the present time, employees in those state departments operated in part by federal funds are governed by a system conforming to federal requirements. It is my belief that a merit system in all departments of the state would be advantageous both to employees and to our state government. I encourage you, I urge you to give most careful consideration to legalization, to legislation authorizing such a policy. Comptroller. I am deeply impressed with the responsibility of the governor for the administration of an annual budget of more than $11 million. And I appeal to you for legislative authority to establish an office to be known as the Office of the Comptroller to assist the governor in the discharge of his responsibilities as Chief Executive Officer of the state's extensive and involved business establishment. It is not my purpose, nor wish, to disrupt the work of the Treasurer and Auditor, but rather to correlate their duties with the duties of a Comptroller who would be directly responsible to the governor in carrying out the fiscal program voted by the legislature. Several states have reorganized their business procedure during the past 20 years in accordance with the plan I have in mind. The results in all cases, so far as I have been able to ascertain, have been satisfactory. Consequently, there is not only precedent for the plan of reorganization I should like to propose, but also experience to which you may refer in working out the legislation needed. Industrial development. Since the depression began 10 years ago, much attention has been focused on the problem of unemployment. This has been nationwide. National defense is bound to remedy this in some localities, at least temporarily. 
Here in Vermont, however, we have a situation which has grown steadily worse over the past 50 years. An analysis of census figures makes us realize that we must face an unpleasant situation and find a remedy for it. Between 1930 and 1940, Vermont lost population. This despite the influx of new residents and despite a favorable birth to death ratio. During these 10 years, nearly 30,000 residents or more than the population of Burlington left the state. Most of those leaving belonged to the so-called productive age group, 20 to 45 years. This exodus of young Vermonters has been going on for several decades. As an unfortunate result, Vermont has a progressively smaller population proportion of people in this productive age group, 20 to 45, and an increasingly larger proportion in the older group, 65 and over, than does New England or the nation. Our towns have thus been losing population steadily. If this trend is allowed to continue, we must face the necessity either of reorganizing our historic town unit system form government or of increasing the burden on those who remain and denying them to them many of the social gains that have thus far been made. We are justly proud of the accomplishments that sons and daughters of Vermont have made in all walks of life after they have left the state. But do we ever think what Vermont might be today if even a part of the energy and creative genius which left us could have found opportunity for development at home? Why have the young folks left? Chiefly because we failed to make room for them here and did not give them faith in our future. They felt that they could not find the means of earning a living and that there was no outlet for their abilities. Jobs and opportunities were lacking. While this migration of our young people has been going on, expansion of industry has offered the outstanding but neglected possibility for the needed extensive increase of employment opportunity and an expanded market for more of our agricultural products. Prompted not only by desire to see a betterment of industry with a consequent increase in taxable sources and the enlarged opportunities that would be offered, but more particularly from a desire for the general betterment of Vermont, I suggest to you that at this session of the legislature, the subject of the state's policy toward industrial development be given most careful consideration. There must be closer cooperation and better understanding between government and business. I do, I not, do not think of a program for industry whereby Vermont would be made a heavily industrialized area, nor by which mammoth factories would be located here. Either of these alternatives would be harmful rather than beneficial. As I see it, the greatest benefit will come from locating small to medium-sized units here and there about the state, while at the same time substantially preserving present natural conditions. One, we cannot afford to foster sweatshop industry, relying as it does either on sweating labor or exploiting the locality. Two, we cannot afford industries such as smelters, which in their operation destroy all vegetation in the surrounding area. Neither can we afford industries which destroy other natural resources or that make a living intolerable in their vicinity or make living in their intolerable in their vicinity. We need, and number three, we need and should have industries that can use not only an increasing amount of agricultural products and crops adaptable to our client and climate and soils, but those other resources with which we are so richly endowed. Four, most desirable in my opinion, are those industries whose products are worthy of the Vermont quality label particularly those industries which depend for success more on a supply of loyal, cooperative, non-transient labor 
so characteristic of that to be found in Vermont than on low material cost, low transportation, or low operating cost. For such industries in Vermont with modern means of transportation offers may, many outstanding advantages. Today, honesty and good housekeeping in state and municipal government, as reflected by reasonable taxes, laws, and law enforcement, is frequently more important to industrial success and harmony than is a location close to sources of materials or markets. I lost my place, I'm sorry. I believe an effort to increase our industrial establishments is ah. wise and timely. I suggest that to obtain the greatest benefit to the state, an industrial agent be authorized by you and an agency for this purpose be established that this agency may be given at least three duties. To survey possible available properties and assist our existing industries to meet their problems, to encourage and give assistance other than in financing to Vermont citizens in establishing new local enterprises, to develop and carry on the effort to attract the right kind of industry to Vermont. To carry out these duties effectively, this agency should be set up with a director of outstanding ability, and he should be authorized to employ temporarily such technical consultants or advisors as may be necessary. I feel strongly for the reasons I've outlined that you should enact necessary legislation to put this plan or a better one into operation. Section three. In addition to legislation necessary to implement any or all of these changes in organization, there are certain orders I suggest for your deliberation, namely constitutional amendment. I direct your attention to the fact that following the procedure laid down in the constitution, proposals to amend that document may be offered during the session. In your deliberations, it should not be overlooked that once an amendment is made to the Constitution, over 12 years must elapse before it can be modified or repealed. Therefore, I suggest that unusual care be taken in initiating any amendment to the Constitution and that consideration be given only to those designated for the lasting good of our state. State reports. The people under our democratic process are the owners or stakeholders of the governmental establishment. There seems to be no good reason, therefore, why State Department reports should not be as understandable in their presentation as our newspapers, magazines, and scientific journals. Mm -hmm. Enabling legislation, power plants. For many sessions, the General Assembly has had presented to it for enactment special bills to enable individual municipalities to construct and operate local electric power plants. These measures have consumed the valuable time of the entire body when it would seem that such time might more profitably have been given to problems involving the state as a whole. I therefore recommend to you that a general enabling act be passed that will dispose of the matter on a statewide basis, enabling any local geographical unit or political subdivision of our state to construct and operate such a utility provided the standards of the statewide enabling act be met by protecting cities or towns, the taxpayer, and the private concern. Should this recommendation meet with your approval, such an act should of course be so drafted that it will be fair to the unit fostering the development, the individual members of that unit, privately established public utilities, and to the state as a whole. 
Susquehannock. In 1791, Vermont became the first state after the original 13 colonies to be admitted to statehood. It was this year that we celebrate the 150th anniversary of that memorable event. The commission appointed to make plans and preparations for the recognition and celebration of that event will shortly place in your hands their report. I ask your cooperation in considering and carrying out the suggestions therein made. Sabotage. Maintenance of our internal security is a joint responsibility. The times demand wholehearted cooperation between federal and state law enforcement agencies. In this national emergency, I am convinced that our sabotage statutes are inadequate and recommend a careful study and revision where necessary. Federal aid. Local and state government is increasingly dependent upon federal aid to meet many of their responsibilities. Increasing reliance is placed in federal subsidy. I wish to offer one word of caution. The huge amount of such aid now being granted cannot continue indefinitely. There may come a day when it will be unavailable. We must, in the meantime, in looking to such a day, strive to make ourselves as strong and self-reliant as possible. Trade barriers. Should it develop that legislation is introduced that may tend to interfere with free intercourse of trade between our state and the sister states, I ask you to weigh carefully the desirability of such legislation, lest we unwittingly increase trade barriers between the states and thereby increase the demand for more federal regulation of interstate transactions. Section 4. Now I come to the lifeblood of our vitality, the source of our state's income, and the health of the economic basis from which that income is derived. Agriculture. Agriculture is one of the most important industries in our state. Cash farm income in Vermont, not including income of tourists and work off the farm during the past year, was about $43 million. This income was distributed to the many farm families in every town. It was then used by these families in purchasing the goods and services which they need from the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Thus, it is that we are all vitally interested in that farm income, and it is just good business judgment for us to concern ourselves with the problems involved in this, our great and fundamental industry. About 75% of our farm income is derived from our dairies. In this enterprise, we are in competition with other areas, and we will need efficient production and effective marketing if we are to continue to compete successfully. Bangs disease. One of the great problems in a Efficient production is the control of devastating dairy diseases. Bangs disease, affecting as it does both public health and the farmer's welfare, is a great menace. Its control is correspondingly important. The legislature of 1935 provided for state control by the test and slaughter method. Additional measures authorizing control by other methods were enacted in 1939. The United States Bureau of Animal Industry has recently conducted a nationwide experiment in preventative control by calf hood vaccination, which renders young animals immune to this disease. If control by this method is effective, as is predicted, it will be of immeasurable value to both farmers and taxpayers by eliminating the slaughter of so many valuable animals and payment of huge sums for indemnity. The Department of Agriculture has been studying the various methods of control and is prepared to submit amendments to the present laws. It is recommended that this important matter be given careful consideration by the legislature. Before we move on to herd improvement, 
Yes. So there is a internet provider van pulling up my driveway. Oh, how interesting. Shall we pause? I think they're going to my neighbors. I just want to forewarn that they could touch things and then things could happen and we might lose each other. Okay. Okay. Herd improvement. It is gratifying to note the increased development of dairy herd improvement projects. This indicates a growing interest and alertness on the part of our farmers, which bids well for future economy and production and consequent improvement in earnings on the farm. Insofar as possible, measures should be taken to improve the quality of our pastures and to increase and improve the quality of the winter feeds which we produce. Milk marketing. We have heard less of milk marketing problems during the past year or so. Apparently, the activities of our milk control board and the federal marketing orders have given general satisfaction and helped to stabilize the situation. I hope farmers may not be led to lean too heavily on these props, but that they will continue to a greater and greater extent to set up their own controls and to solve their own problems. There is one great inefficiency in the handling of milk after it leaves the farm, namely duplication of plants and collection service in gathering milk throughout the territory. An authority on this subject declares that it occasions the waste of more than $2 million annually. This offers a very fertile field for study and activity on the part of the cooperative associations in seeking to eliminate as much of that waste and loss as is practical and possible. There have been two exhaustive studies made of the milk problem in Vermont by committees authorized by the legislature. I believe that the state-supported agricultural institutions should take a positive action either by demonstrating specifically how the suggestions made can be followed by the individual farmer or by recommending alternatives having the same ultimate objective in view. Diversity in agriculture, but dairying is not all. We have many other agricultural enterprises. Poultry production is growing in importance. Our farm forest products, maple sugar and syrup, lumber, pulpwood and cordwood, all together comprise a considerable part of Vermont farm income, but not so much as they might under good management. Other enterprises are potatoes, apples, small fruit and vegetables, honey and many others. And we should be constantly seeking additional ones. It is equally unwise to have all our eggs in one basket and we will be wise to be seeking new crops and other products we can produce. Willis does like to to do his little puns, doesn't he? He does indeed. Industrial Agricultural Productions Products Commission. Let me read that again. Industrial Agricultural Products Commission. The Industrial Agricultural Products Commission has been more effective in its program for a more profitable, diversified agricultural and utilization of our land. In their help is offered a partial solution of another situation with which Vermont has long been confronted, the loss of our state of its younger people. Youth demands opportunity. It exists on our own farms here in Vermont. It has been made attractive in many individual instances. It can and must be made so generally. Rural electrification. As a means of solving this problem, Continued rural electrification should be encouraged. The Grange, the Farm Bureau, the Extension Service, the Public Service Commission, 
and private utility companies under the coordinating influence of an energetic rural electrification board should exert every effort to bring the benefits of electrical service to all by a continuing increase in this field in which so fine a start has already been made. Let's stimulate these efforts to a finish. Cooperatives. Cooperative organizations are commanding greater interest in all parts of the nation, not only in agricultural pursuits, but among consumers as well. Vermont has reason to be proud of the development of its cooperative creamery associations. Their growth in the past 20 years has been substantial. They appear to have been built on a foundation that is enduring. Their growth is testimony to the fact that they have fulfilled a mission needed by their membership. They appear ever willing to push forward by seeking legitimate aid for the farmers through practical and workable marketing order. It is my opinion that the future for Vermont farmers is made brighter through the activity of these associations and particularly by reason of their growing tendency to work in closer harmony as a group. Future for Agriculture In order to hold a truly competitive position with other sections of the country, we must gird ourselves for activity of a constructive character, which may call for the abandonment of some of our prejudices of years past and force us to look forward with the determination and courage that will lead to the improvement of our average farm incomes. The Vermont farmer still has advantages not found anywhere else in the country. His are not the problems of the Dust Bowls, artificial irrigation and such. Nature has endowed Vermont with an abundant supply of water mm -hmm. with fertile lands for cultivation with rich pastures and woodlots. Geographically too, he has the advantage in his nearness to markets. The farmer, as well as everyone else, must make adjustments to meet the contingencies of the times. But the essential benefits in our Vermont country life cannot be evaluated in dollars and cents. By discounting the future on our farms, we fail to keep pace with the times or to keep faith with the youth. Industrial relations. The wise action of previous legislatures in treating and maintaining a Department of Industrial Relations is unquestioned. It is to this agency of our state government, labor and industry look for counsel. Here they meet, here they learn their respective rights under existing law. Such a vital activity of our state government important to both labor and industry should be encouraged and implemented. The problems of labor deserve your earnest consideration. I ask that, in consideration of labor legislation, you seriously weigh the representations of that group. Our aim must be to preserve our state as a healthy community of satisfied citizens working together in the Vermont tradition of unity. I am sure that you are conscious of this, and I know you will have that always in mind. You and I realize that if we have a prosperous state, there must be unity among agriculture, labor, industry, and business. The success of each is dependent on the success of the others. We do not believe that we can strengthen the weak by weakening the strong. Neither do we believe that we can further the brotherhood of man by pitting class against class. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Recreation. I'm impressed to find that our recreation business yields about $28 million annually. In our natural resources, Vermont today possesses unique and often unappreciated assets of invaluable importance to her spiritual and economic welfare. Our soil, valleys, mountains, forests, water resources, and wildlife must not merely be taken for granted. 
Fortunate are we that they are here for our use, enjoyment, and financial benefit, but in using them, we are not sole owners with a right to exhaust or destroy. Instead, we are trustees privileged to enjoy and use them while we operate the state. We must ever be careful lest we destroy the benefits which by right should belong to the Vermonters of the future. Taxation. We all must realize that government cannot operate without funds and that only through the taxing process can these funds be raised. It is from the purse of each of us that this money comes. The smaller amount we pay in direct or indirect taxes, the more dollars will remain for us to spend as we wish. The power to tax is the power to destroy. I feel sure that in your hands this power will be prudently used and that you will continue to respect Vermont's traditional pay-as-you-go policy. We in Vermont do not believe that we can bring about prosperity by discouraging thrift. Neither do we believe that we can keep out of trouble by spending more than our income. In the true Vermont fashion, let us cut our pattern to fit our cloth. Amusement machines. The legislature of 1939 legalized mechanical devices known as amusement machines by licensing their use. The use of these machines has been the cause of much grief, and I now urge the repeal of this law. I appreciate fully that this would mean some loss of revenue to the state, but I do feel that the income lost is insufficient to offset the moral damage under this license. So amusement machines, it sounds like maybe gambling rather than, say, a roller coaster? I don't know. I've never thought a roller coaster could bring moral damage, but you never know. It's a lot of thrill in the gut. There you go. That might, you know, you can't get people too excited now. State office building. I wish to call your attention today a serious condition which exists in the business operation of our government. I hope for favorable action by this legislature on the suggestion that I now advance for your consideration. We are in dire need of an adequate office building. We suffer from a lack of the facilities that it would afford. The first and most important improvement to result from this construction would be the establishment of proper safeguards to life and property under existing circumstances. I am informed that the old National Life Building, now occupied by the state, is in in a dangerous structural condition owing overloading. The boilers in the library building constitute a serious fire and explosion hazard. The lives of many employees and the property of the state in these two buildings are constantly endangered. The Attorney General has informed the Sergeant at Arms that the responsibility for the safety of the lives of those persons and the property of the state rests with the Governor. I herewith and now hand that grave responsibility to you. I am informed by competent authority that no high-pressure boiler should be placed under such a valuable building containing property which can never be replaced. Safeguards to life and property, although they are serious problems, are not, however, the only considerations involved. The financial loss through inefficiency in operation, and impediments to cooperative action between various departments scattered throughout the city of Montpelier cannot readily be appraised in dollars and cents, but a careful study of the unfortunate condition indicates that it is considerable. There is now being paid out in rents nearly $9,000 annually for state-occupied quarters. 
This amount will increase as leases expire and operations further expand. The state government's built business has increased during the past few years far beyond our expectations. No new building to remedy this additional crowded condition has been undertaken since 1919. Most of our buildings and nearly all of the rented quarters are not fireproof structures. Irreplaceable damage and great financial loss would result were our records, documents, surveys, and summaries of experiments so vital to our everyday operations be destroyed by fire. We are at a crossroads on this subject. It will probably be many years before we can build so advantageously and at so low a cost. I trust that positive action will no longer be delayed on this extremely important matter. A building of suitable design and construction to conform to the State House and Annex with provision for future development and needs, which, should give, which would give the state adequate office and storage facilities, I am advised by competent authority, would cost approximately $600,000, for which we have sufficient cash in the general fund. The steady improvement in business has provided substantially more general fund revenues through taxation, licenses, and fees than the amounts used in budget estimates. By June 30, 1940, the treasurer had accumulated a free cash balance in the general fund of over $1 million. Since then, collections have continued to exceed budget forecasts. Consequently, it is reasonable to expect that the state will again close its books next June with a free cash balance of something more than a $1 million after carrying out the financial program authorized by the legislature of 1939. I think it's pinball, an amusement machine. Ah, pinball. Oh my gosh. I love pinball. Yeah. <laughs> um, soldier's bonus. I did a little Googling while you were reading. Thank you for that. Um, the balance of surplus cash, in my opinion, should be set aside as a reserve against the state's obligation for a soldier's bonus that may accrue if and when the National Guard is inducted into the federal service. Section 8057 of the public laws provides that enlisted men of the militia, National Guard, and volunteers in the service of the United States shall be paid by the state the sum of $10 each per month in addition to the pay which they shall receive from the federal government provided that the period for which such state pay shall be allowed shall not exceed one year. It is estimated that this extra pay for our soldiers would approximate $300,000 for which there is no provision in the budget. Moreover, the legislature should also consider the establishment of a home guard to substitute for the National Guard while the latter is in federal service. I'm advised that the adequate equipment for the purpose would cost $25,000 and suggest that the expenditure also be financed with surplus cash. Cash surplus. Before leaving the problem of financing the new office building proposed and the prospective, prospective soldier's bonus, I should like to remind you that the accumulation of cash surplus is unusual and for that reason should not be used for recurring items of depleting revenue for the future. <laughs> Sound familiar, Emily? Mm -hmm. This surplus accumulated because general fund revenue collections through an unexpected improvement in business exceeded reasonable estimates with which our biennial budget was concerned. Therefore, I sincerely hope that the legislature in its financial de deliberations will, at all times, consider that the revenue estimates to be submitted in my executive budget are the maximum amounts 
which we can reasonably expect during the coming biennial period, as all the revenue estimates have been raised to new heights, conservative but not elastic. Section 5 and the final section. My message to you would be incomplete if I neglected to call your attention to call to your attention a fundamental weakness and a trend which in my opinion have much to do with our uneasiness and spirit of unrest. We have great meetings and discussions on economic subjects, but the citizens of Vermont are not giving adequate attention to the spiritual needs of the individual and of the state as a whole. We comment about the breakdown of morals both within the state and nation, but fail to recognize the fact that it may be due, and in my opinion is due in large measure, to the spiritual indifference of citizens. We comment frequently on the prosperity of a bygone age, but seldom in our passing comments do we connect the two thoughts to the people of yesterday were pious and devout in the matter of their religious beliefs and practices. We as individuals would do well within our respective communities to join with others in serious study, analysis, and action toward reviving interest and stimulating activity in the realm of our spiritual needs. If America is to be saved, each individual must first put his own house in order. The Ten Commandments cannot be improved upon, nor can the Sermon on the Mount be surpassed as a guide for ethical conduct. The governor, having concluded the reading of his message, was escorted to the executive chamber by the committee appointed by the chair. The joint assembly was dissolved. Ralston C. Merrick, Secretary of State, Clerk. And that is the inaugural address of William H. Wills of 1941. Um, so many thoughts, Emily, um, and we probably have about 10, 15 minutes. What do you think? What's your initial reaction? You know, my very initial reaction is that this guy is like a super duper extreme conservative. <laughs> like in ways that we haven't seen yet in some, in any of the previous inaugural addresses that we've read. Um, I think, you know, we've seen people who are certainly products of their time, but it yes. seems that he's the first person to be sort of arguing very explicitly for um, a shrinking of government and sort of against further taxation. All of the others seemed interested in raising revenues. Um, and that weird God stuff at the end. Mm -hmm. um, it's my very eloquent response to that. Um, mm -hmm. It's also There's like, there was a lot in this speech that I'm like, okay, I can, I may not agree with you, but okay, I get where you're coming from. And then you get to the end and I'm like, eh. <laughs> yeah. I also, um, the very beginning, the way he talked about the Nazis and why that happened was appalling to me. Hmm. Um, and I think, you know, this is, we're still in, we're still living in eugenics, right? In Vermont, that is where Hitler learned, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, the Nazis learned about eugenics essentially from watching what Vermont did and a few other places. Yes. Um, and that sort of the focus was on the dissolving of democracy and not on just like the horrific suffering that was happening. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's sort of a cultural myth that Americans didn't know what was happening in the death camps and they did mm -hmm. like, there's yes. so much evidence that they did. Right. Yep. Um, so that was all 
fairly appalling as a way to start the whole thing off. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that the beginning was caught my attention because when he first started talking and, and talking about the, the, the attack on institutions and such, I thought, you know, how fascinating because while we were in the, you know, Trump was still in office, there was a lot of discussions about attack on institutions. And at first I was like, okay, this is an interesting mirror. And then mm-hmm. when he got to that sentence, you know, the dry rot and that look at um, this, it, it set up for me an echo throughout the speech of individual responsibility mm-hmm. that I think might be partly why, why you're talking about him being such an extreme conservative uh, because it's like, it, it's back to that pull yourself up by your bootstraps Um that I just, it, it, it set up an echo that was just really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, and yes, leaving out the, the discussions of just the horrors of war and the horrors mm-hmm. of the third Reich, um, and the, the individual suffering, um, that was happening. Yeah. And then there's other pieces that's just like, Wow, we like never we've been having the exact same conversation. I was for wondering if you were gonna say that. Ever. Yes. Like the section on education and pay, it's like we are still having the debate about whether or not districts should control salary, teacher salaries, or if the state should. Mm-hmm. And it's happening on both sides. Like, would it be better for teachers, but not be better for teachers, would it be better for communities, blah, blah, blah still having that conversation, all of the stuff about agriculture, all of the stuff about like the young people are fleeing. We need to make mm-hmm. more opportunities for them. The career technical education. Oh my gosh. Yes. The industry, the creation of the, I noticed that the, basically the agency of commerce is sort of foreshadowed and created here, mm-hmm. but it's very specific that they shouldn't be giving money to businesses, which I thought was interesting. And then there was that like super anti-labor section, which is fascinating given that like these were, I mean, these years before the war started, like this was the most socialist country ever was, Mm -hmm. right? I know. In one paragraph, he's talking about how great cooperatives are. And then, yes, in the next paragraph, he's, he's going after workers. Well, there are three basic forms of cooperatives, Olga. One of them are owner co-ops, which is what the creameries are. Mm-hmm. Mm, good point. Okay. Those are not worker co-ops. Mm. Good, good, um, good reminder. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what else in here? There was like a lot of little bits. There's the pinball. That was fun. <laughs> Back to the morals. Well, I think what, what I found interesting about this speech and also the one before it, um, was it, uh, weeks, I think we wrote, we read governor weeks who was talking about flood recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, his was from, I I believe 1929. Now Mm -hmm. I realize we're getting to speeches that are closer to our historical memory. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so that might be one reason they feel a little more present. Mm -hmm. But 
when when we were reading this speech, I just kept thinking in the lines of we're having the same conversations. Mm-hmm. It was it was like, wow, we're having the same conversations. We're not getting anywhere, though. Are mm-hmm. we truly looking at these as modern Vermonters? Are we actually looking at these problems in new ways? Or are we just rehashing what our ancestors have done before our political ancestors have done before us? Yeah. Like, are we as radical thinkers as we actually think we are? I think no. I was kind of feeling the same way. (laughs) (laughs) But I also don't know, like, what does it take to have, you know, I think it's an interesting question. And I think part of the reason is that we're not is because we don't take the time to realize that this debate has been going on. I mean, I remember, so when I first was really stepping into my work on ways and means, I asked a few people who had been working in Vermont tax law for a long time, like, what are the three things you think I should read? Mm-hmm. And one of them, Deb Brighton, who was a longtime joint fiscal office staff. On the show, I think, right? Yes. Suggested that I read this like history of Vermont taxes that was super geeky and incredibly helpful because I was like, oh, wow, that's why we have this emphasis on property taxes. That's why we've been having this conversation in this shape for so long. This is what's different now and what's not, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to it's hard to remember to do that. Yeah. Well, that takes time. Mm-hmm. And quite often we don't feel it's time we have. No. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes, too, we... We just reject the past as, well, they didn't know what they were doing. We wouldn't have these mistakes now if they knew what they were doing. So let's just reject all of it. Do we do that? I think sometimes we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and in so doing, we don't act, we t- don't take the time to actually learn from it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I am trying to find, I lost my little browser window, Olga, that had speech in it. So excuse me, I am trying to find it while we talk. That is okay. Um, I was surprised. um, I I was intrigued by the talk around constitutional amendments. And I don't know what constitutional amendments people were considering at that time. He alluded to it, but um, I think that is something I want to look up because I'm, I'm, it sounded like it was all about cars and roads, but I don't know. It could have been something completely different. And it also seemed like he like so much doesn't want it to happen, Mm -hmm. but isn't willing to come out and say that explicitly. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's talking about the, the good of Vermont and yet we don't actually know what the amendments are. Mm -hmm. That would have been fun. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll have to put that on the the list of what we've learned mm-hmm. questions. We're almost out of time, Emily. Is there anything else you wanted to to say before we? Um, yeah, the beginning of rural electrification and the conversations around that, and how um, you know we still have a lot of those co-ops, those electrical co-ops that started mm-hmm. during this time. Um, this is a place where I really appreciated how it mirrored our broadband rollout and yes. the language around that and the rhetoric around that. I thought that was like, that seems a good use of history. And I know that we've sort of talked about it in that context so many times and I appreciated that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, his discussion of utilities as well just made me think of an article I did early on in my career at the Commons. So this would have been like 2010, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. the, the discussion around district heating mm-hmm. and, and having more localized energy and heating plants uh, on kind of a micro scale. Uh, it just reminded me of that. And then, of mm-hmm. course, some of the discussion around um, agriculture and Vermont not having the same problems as, say, like the Dust Bowl. Mm-hmm. And how that, for me, mirrored some of the conversations we're having around climate change now. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, I think the summer taught us that we're not immune from. Oh, no. <laughs> much of anything. So, yeah, nothing actually stops at the state border mm-hmm. besides legislation and um, road signs and <laughs> just billboards. That's the only thing that stops. That's the, the only thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Olga, thank you. This was a really interesting one. Thank you. Yes, I'm glad we made it through. It's given me a lot to think about. Uh, and the demographics, of course, I'm sure we will circle back to that again at some point. Mm-hmm. I believe next week we will be hearing from our last governor, which is who is Philip Hoff. Mm-hmm. Is it Hoff? Yeah. Yeah, it's Philip Hoff. And you offered to me a decision about if we want to do 1965 or 1967. And I just want to say, if any listeners are at home and have an opinion, please feel free to send an email and let us know which year of Philip Hoff's inaugural address you're interested in hearing. Yeah. They both looked really good, which is why I could choose. Yeah. Yeah. Send us an email um, at the Montpelier happy hour at gmail.com and let us know which one we should read. And if your email is going to say, can you all stop reading these inaugural speeches? Don't worry. Coming up's the last one, and we'll be back to our regular programming in September. (laughs) In the meantime, Emily, what should we remind listeners of? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively, and not the station that these words are being broadcast on. I also, my understanding is that Brattleboro Community Radio has a new station home. Does it? Yes, they're oh, moving yes, they the Hooker Dunham building to somewhere that's accessible. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, somewhere in Flat Street, I believe. Yes. So that's very exciting. That is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, my, Although we don't tend to record in the studio, uh, all the best to everyone who does use the studio. Mm-hmm. And yes, it will be much more accessible for for folks with mobility issues. So yay for that. Um, as always, we want to thank everyone who tunes into the show. We want to thank everyone on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, and all its underwriters, as well as BCTV for taking our video uh, version of this show and sharing it with stations across Vermont. So thank you, BCTV. And as always, thank you, listeners. Emily, if people want to learn more about you, how do they do that? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you'll find links to all of the communication portals. And as always, the Montpelier Happy Hour is on WVEW at 2 p.m. on Fridays, rebroadcast at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays, and you can subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. Take care, everyone. Have a good weekend.